Luke 23, what I want to do is let's just read from verse 32 uh, down through a section that describes the crucifixion of Jesus. I'm not going to comment on all the verses, but just for sake of letting them remind us and speak to us of what took place when Jesus suffered and died for our sins on our behalf. It tells us, Luke 23, beginning in verse 32, uh, there were also two others criminals. The other gospels tell us specifically that these criminals were thieves or robbers. So those who had been indicted for the the crime of stealing from people and selfishly acquiring for themselves things from others uh, so that they might make their lives better. So these two individuals indicted as criminals uh, were led out with Jesus to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, There they crucified him, and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And again, remember Isaiah's prediction, Isaiah 53 of Jesus said that Jesus would be put to death together with transgressors, uh, those who had transgressed the law of God and were criminals in a sense, morally and spiritually. And so we see here prophetically Jesus not just being crucified alone, but together with transgressors uh, these two criminals one on each side of him are crucified as he is and in the midst of this crucifixion process we get one of the seven statements of Jesus that he made from the cross where Jesus uttered in the midst of all the pain and the suffering and the mistreatment father he prays forgive them for they do not know what they do and he divided, or they divided his garments and cast lots, another fulfillment of scripture. And the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ, the, the Messiah, the anointed one who was sent to save, the chosen of God, the soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine. And saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, the three most predominant languages, so covering all the language of communication in the known world in that day, so that all could read. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, Into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was 
a righteous man. Now, in Luke's gospel, back in chapter 9, there's a statement that Jesus makes, and in some ways, as I kind of thought through this passage, it, it sort of came to memory in Luke's gospel, chapter 9, Jesus states there this in regards to commitment and what we would do with our lives. Jesus, very familiar statement, Luke 9, 25, he said, for what profit, what value, what benefit, the idea is, is it to a man if he gains the whole world and himself is destroyed or lost? What profit, what value, what benefit is it to a man, to a person, if they gain not just a lot of money, a lot of success, a lot of accomplishments, but he says, if, if it were possible to gain the whole world, to gain everything that the world has to offer, what profit, value, or benefit would it be to a person if they could potentially gain everything the world could possibly offer and supply? And in the midst of doing that, ultimately their end is that Jesus says they end up in the midst of that being destroyed personally, as well as, of course, that's an inference to eternally, eternal destruction and lost that is they actually in gaining everything they could in the world end up really losing everything in the process and again not just lost personally but lost eternally again another reference the bible speaks of those who are saved eternally and those who are lost eternally in other occasions when jesus made similar statements mark's gospel and the other gospels jesus says You know, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits or loses his own soul? And to me, this is interesting because the picture there of going out, striving, gaining, acquiring, probably stealing and doing everything you can to gain everything out there. If you're going to gain the whole world, you're going to have to steal a lot from other people. (laughs) If you're going to gain the whole world, you're going to have to do a lot of things to be able to push people aside, to hurt people, wound people. You're going to have to be probably a pretty selfish, greedy, self-focused individual to gain the whole world. And it's interesting that he says, what does it profit if you go out and you do that and you rob and steal and cheat and do everything you can to hurt and harm everyone else just for your own personal benefit and advantage? In the midst of doing that, you destroy your own life, you lose your own life And you really just kind of lose your soul, not only personally, but spiritually and eternally in the process. Now, the reason I find that interesting is because the two individuals that the Bible records for us here in the crucifixion account that end up being right next to Jesus on his right and left, when he is being crucified, the Bible tells us they are criminals. The other accounts tell us that they're actually robbers, that they're thieves. Now, a lot of different things you could do to commit crimes, but it's interesting that the two individuals that are dying, experiencing the the death sentence next to Jesus, being condemned to death as capital punishment, are actually two men who were such vile, evil criminals that they're being put to death for their deeds, their wrongdoings, but the predominant focus the Bible puts upon them is that they're robbers, they're thieves. And what are robbers and thieves do? They, they basically go out and they do wrong things to take and steal everything out there that doesn't belong to them, right? In essence, to, to make their life better, to benefit their life. And it kind of in many ways reminds me of exactly what Jesus is saying. 
you know, it's almost the picture of a, not just criminal, but the picture of someone who's a thief and a robber. You go out, you gain the whole world, and in trying to steal from everything and everyone and rob the world and plunder the world of all it has to offer, and even all that really we shouldn't take, but we selfishly acquire for ourselves anyway through sins and wrongdoings, uh, in the midst of that, we don't end up benefiting in the end. We end up losing in the end. And it's not how you begin life or do life. Look, and the point I want to ultimately make this evening, the point is how you end. It's how you end life. Because you can live life really well for a while and then you can you can kind of just crash and burn at the very end. And in the same way, you can live life kind of pretty bad and have a rocky start, maybe even a bad you know middle and honestly five foot before the finish line, then trip one more time and fall flat on your face. But if you get up... <laughs> And you still cross the finish line, you you finished. Uh, And it's not a matter of how we start or how we do in the middle. It's a matter of how things end ultimately that matter the most, even from God's perspective. God always focuses on the end game. And even in the crucifixion account of Jesus, we find two different individuals who had very similar backgrounds, but the way their life ended couldn't be more drastically different, right? These two criminals. Again, the Bible tells us here in this account that Jesus was being crucified. It tells us back at the beginning of our reading in verse 32. And again, we've talked about the crucifixion process before. After having been scourged and beaten and bloodied and and just bludgeoned by punches and people ripping out his beard and just tremendous torture, his back ripped open from the scourging process. So Jesus is already incredibly weakened from blood loss and the physical abuse that he's taken He's been kept up all night long. He's weary. He's exhausted. And then after that, to be put through the crucifixion process, which was intended to be not a quick death experience, but an extended, drawn-out, agonizing, painful experience that was a slow, progressive process towards death. And it's at this point they now begin the crucifixion process of Jesus. They put him down on the wooden uh, crossbeam there that he tried to carry, but he was so just exhausted and physically, remember, just drained. He couldn't even carry his own cross, the, the horizontal beam, out to the site of the crucifixion. And there they would put him down. They'd, of course, stretch out his arms and then just huge iron spikes driven through the wrist area right below the hand area where the radius and the ulna come together. You almost have like a natural hook there in your two arm bones as they come together. And the median nerve runs right through that area, which is a very large nerve. So again, through the flesh, through the muscles, through the tendons, through the nerve endings, the pain of the spike being driven into his arms on both sides and then taking the feet and putting them together in the same and then one spike driven uh, through the you know ankle and foot area there driven to hold him fast to then that horizontal beam and, and vertical beam put together and then raised up and and the the difficulty was not just the pain of having been pierced with the spikes or nails to be crucified but it was the experience of having had to hang there for an extended period of time. And really the struggle was more asphyxiation. As you were slumped down and the body was pushed in that condition, you were able to breathe in, but the difficulty was being able to exhale. And so you could take oxygen in, but it was difficult for the crucified victim to be able to exhale the carbon dioxide. And if you know anything about the buildup of carbon dioxide in your body and in your blood, uh, some of you have, you know, perhaps had before even, you know, nowadays they do 
Uh, surgeries in a less traditional way rather than you know cutting you open they just make a few puncture spots right and then they they fill you up with air and they go in with just a couple probes and cameras and they do their work but what's a common side effect of that is then the air the carbon dioxide right it gets trapped in your body and then sometimes there's a lot of pain in the shoulder and the neck area until that co2 works itself out of the body well too much carbon dioxide in anybody's body is not good we're supposed to exhale it and get it out So the difficulty was, ultimately, it wasn't so much suffocation as much as asphyxiation. It was an overload of carbon dioxide would build up in the bloodstream in the body of the crucified victim, causing more agony and more pain. And the only way they could exhale or get things out or say anything was they would have to push up off of that spike through their feet, driven in, scraping their bloodied, ripped open back on a wooden cross there just to be able to... (laughs) To exhale, to say something, as Jesus made each of these seven statements, understand uh, they were imperative, unique statements that Jesus was making. He only made seven statements. Interesting, seven is the number of completion in the Bible. So there were seven complete things that Jesus wanted to say. We know many of them. We read a few right here. Ultimately, he says, it is finished. We know in John's gospel, paid in full. But, but the difficulty that Jesus was going through in the midst of these things, and as he is being crucified, we're told there in verse 34, he starts to pray. And what does his prayer reflect? Mercy and compassion. He says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. Now, when you see somebody being crucified, let's just be very candid. That doesn't seem like a process where people don't know what they're doing. Correct? I mean, it's a very intentional thing. When the Romans march someone out to a crucifixion site and show the power and iron fist of Rome that if you violate Roman law or you cross our authority, this is what happened to you. We will beat you. We will strip you. We will brutalize you. And then we will hang you upon that cross and allow you for hours, sometimes days, to gradually expire and die as the birds of prey come and you know pick at your flesh and all these kind of horrible things. Again, the 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 whole idea of crucifixion was it to be was to be an excruciating, agonizing process, intentionally to deter people from ever wanting to resist Rome. It's where we get our English word excruciating that comes from crucifixion. That that's the whole idea there, and, and so. It's strange in some ways to hear Jesus say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do when the reality is they were very intentionally knowing what. But Jesus, in his mercy, just seeing the ignorance of humanity, looks upon them in mercy and he says, Father, they're they're doing this in blindness. It's in ignorance. Father, they're in the dark. They don't understand who I am. They don't recognize. And look, truth be told, When we look back in all of our pasts and before you knew Jesus and you were walking with Jesus, some of the things you did, some of the things I did, uh, we were really intentional about sinning, right? I mean, some of the selfish, evil, mean, rude, nasty, wrong, you can draw out the list, things that we did, we knew what we were doing. Right? We knew what we were doing when we were getting drunk. We knew what we were doing when we were cussing somebody out or slugging somebody or you know, being immoral sexually or you know, what, whatever. We knew what we were doing and we were selfishly doing it anyway. But Jesus, from a merciful perspective, said, but Father, they were so blind. They were so blind. They were so ignorant. 
They were so foolish and, and, and completely lost in their condition. And here Jesus showing such mercy. Now, look with me down in verse 39. It tells us as this whole event is going on and the people, of course, we know verses 35 to 37 describe the mocking, uses terms sneering, mocking. They're they're hurling accusations. The religious leaders are doing it. The crowds are doing it. The Roman soldiers are doing it. They're just saying cruel, hurtful things towards Jesus in the midst of this, questioning him, challenging him Uh, in the midst of all these things. It tells us, verse 39, that then the criminals who were dying there with him joined in this mockery and reviling and sneering and all this is going on. It says, verse 39, then one of the criminals, one of these robbers who had ripped off the whole world again to gain it for himself, but now his own life is being destroyed and lost in the process. One of the criminals who were hanged there, he blasphemed. Him And the word blasphemed again means to speak hurtfully, to speak against in a way that's critical towards God. The other accounts describe that by saying that they reviled Jesus. And the word reviled, if you look it up, basically means to speak in a critical way that is very abusive. So here are these two criminals. They're dying next to Jesus, guilty as sin, no pun intended. I mean, it's just completely just horrible individuals the things that they've done they're they're being put to death they're experiencing a death sentence and they now begin to join in with the crowds blaspheming jesus saying if you are the christ if indeed you are the messiah the the savior this one that was supposed to be sent to us then they say to him save yourself and us now now of course we know this process one criminal's heart is going to remain hard and he's going to enter into eternal destruction and his life will be lost and destroyed and he'll lose his soul. The other criminal, by the grace of God, in this window of time, takes advantage of a little bit of light on this deathbed moment, if you would, sensing his mortality and turns his heart to Jesus. And despite all of his past, ends up being able to enter into the paradise of God and the eternal heavenly existence with Jesus with his dying breath, if you would. Now, what's interesting is the other accounts tell us that both criminals at first were reviling Jesus. Again, even the criminal whose heart softens that we read about, at first he's doing the same thing, reviling the Lord. But, but look what he's, what he's saying, this one particular criminal. If you are the Christ, the Savior, the one that God sent as Messiah, Save yourself and us. Now, isn't that very similar to what's being set up in the prior verses? But what an interesting statement. If you are the Christ, the Messiah, the one who was sent to deliver us, save yourself and us. The reality was Jesus couldn't save himself because then he wouldn't have been able to save anyone else. It was the very fact that Jesus would not save himself and gave himself fully and embraced the suffering and endured the pain and the mistreatment and all the mockery and spitting and sneering. And I mean, just what Jesus absorbed from humanity and the fact that he would not spare himself from that, but embraced the abuse, took the mistreatment and just absorbed it was the very reason he was able to save us. That, that he suffered on our behalf. If he would have saved himself, he wouldn't have been able to save us. Thank goodness that he was willing to endure what he did. 
Isaiah 53 says he would be wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. So in the mockery, save yourself and us. But notice verse 40, something happens. I think is again, the, the, the grace of God, you know, just wrestles with the heart of a human being constantly, constantly, constantly to me until a person's dying breath. You know, if you're looking for any encouragement of the potential of a deathbed conversion, here is the one that the word of God does give to us. Because this guy's in a deathbed moment. He's dying. He's literally close to his dying breath. And this man's heart turns to Jesus and he ends up entering into eternity despite what his entire background and past had been. So be encouraged and continue to believe the Lord until the dying breath of someone, there's still opportunity. And I believe Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God wrestles with the hearts of people, continuing to try and convince them until that last moment. And so in this moment, some window of light, some you know, stirring of grace happens. And this thief number two, if you would, it says the other thief answering turns to the one hanging there with him and he rebuked him. And he said, do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation that we're, you know, we're under the same death sentence as he is. And then verse 41, very insightful. And we indeed justly, in other words, we deserve this. We deserve to be put to death because we've done a lot of wrong. We know that we're guilty. We're up here with a sense of regret and remorse facing our own conscience on the inside because you can't run from your own conscience as a human being, knowing that we have lots of regrets and guilt and we have done things wrong and we're disappointed with ourselves as human beings as we're now dying here, losing everything because we so selfishly lived the way that we did for all these years doing what we wanted rather than you know doing what would have been honoring to God or best for people. So he says, do you not fear God seeing that we're under the same sentence and indeed we deserve this for we receive the due reward for our deeds or misdeeds but this man has done nothing wrong he's completely innocent now a couple things happen here first of all something transpires where this one thief as the spirit of God stirs on his heart the fear of God grips his heart in this moment what he recognizes is he is dying there for the particular reason he's dying. And it's the same thing, honestly, whether you're being put to death in crucifixion, on the electric chair in today's culture in a you know prison or lethal injection, or whether you're just dying because of cancer or disease or for whatever other reason, when somebody is facing their mortality, it is amazing how in that moment eternity becomes louder and realer than ever before. And what really matters and really doesn't matter becomes very, very evident to them in that moment. And there's just this very clear sense, whether they want to articulate it or talk about it or not, trust me, everybody wrestles with that. And that's what's happening. And so the fear of God is setting over his heart and he realizes I am created and there is a creator and a maker and someone I am going to have to answer to. And his heart starts to tremble. Because he's starting to recognize perhaps this man right here is the one that would be the solution to that. So as his you know, fellow crucifixion mate here is mocking Jesus, he says to him, what are you doing? Don't you fear God? Don't you have any fear of God, the reality that you are an accountable human being 
to the person who's keeping our lungs breathing and our heart beating right now? Don't you have any sense of the fear of God? And he says, we're dying justly. We deserve this. He says, we're receiving the due reward for our deeds, for our wrongdoing. He also senses the conviction of his own sin and the reality that he does deserve to be punished. He says, we deserve this and we're receiving the due reward or payment for our wrongdoing. Again, the Bible tells us there's no difference. We all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God and that the wages of our sin is death. That is, he realizes, I am guilty. We deserve punishment and not just this punishment, but there's a greater punishment we need to be afraid of. And this is such an important thing that a person as a human being comes to terms at some point in their life and comes to grips with the reality of their own sinfulness and guiltiness before God. And they realize that their sin deserves to to be punished, that sin has to be punished. God says the soul that sins shall surely die. And there's a healthy thing when a heart is at some point gripped with the fear and the trepidation that I am going to as a guilty, filthy sinner stand before a holy, righteous God that gave me breath in my lungs my whole life long and because I stole in the greatest crime in human history because I stole from the very God that gave me my life I stole my life from him and lived in rebellion to him that's a terrifying thing because I'm going to have to stand before him someday and his heart is becoming overwhelmed with this reality and he's realizing that Jesus is perhaps what he has said he is, the Son of God, the solution, the Savior who indeed was sent to take away the sins of the world. And he, looking to Jesus, says to his friend, look, this man has done nothing wrong. This man's not like us. He's innocent. He's unlike any other human being. Now, when I just look at that statement of Jesus, just ponder that this man has done nothing wrong. That's hard for me as a human being to fathom. If you search your heart and mind genuinely, imagine living your whole life and having never done anything wrong. This man has done nothing wrong. There was never a time in the life of Jesus because he lived out a sinless life in his humanity that he said something wrong. He never thought anything wrong. He never responded wrongly in one situation where there was tension in a relationship he never did anything wrong he never robbed his father in heaven by using his life in any way that was not glorifying or pleasing to god he never robbed god of one minute of time one ounce of strength he never robbed or ripped anybody else off from anything that would would be theirs that he stole away from them just in some selfish or you know greedy or mean act He never did anything wrong, but that's crucial because if Jesus did not live a sinless life, you and I would not be going to heaven because the standard for heaven is perfection. It's complete righteousness and holiness. That's what the Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. A great exchange happened the one who was sinless and perfect and fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law that you and I could never fulfill. He lived a sinless life so that that could be acceptable and and a sacrifice given to God so that then 
he could then become the sin offering and the wrath of God could be fired down upon him and he could suffer the wrath of God as he bore our sins in his own body and a great exchange happened. He takes all the guilt of the sin of humanity, every selfish, wrong, evil, rotten thing you and I cumulatively from the moment we breathed our first breath until our dying breath contributed together with the whole world jesus absorbed all of that in his love for us and in the sacrifice he made for us and then gave to us in exchange this status righteousness like a person who's never done anything wrong that had our status that's what it means to be justified just as if i'd never sinned and that end that you get the righteousness of jesus imputed to your account and that's what's offered to us in this great exchange. And you know what? That's something that we need. It's interesting the two criminals aren't named. Do you want to know why? Personally, I think, so that we could fill ourselves in there. Because every single one of us, to some degree, is a criminal. Right? You talk to a police officer, you ask them, you know, what does it take for somebody to be a lawbreaker? How many times do they have to violate the law or get arrested to be a lawbreaker? Once. Now, there are people who break the law lots of times. There are people who break more severe laws. There are some people that are locked up for life. There are some people that get the death sentence. There are other people who just, they drive too fast, right? They still violated the law. They're a lawbreaker. Any infraction of the law, and look, the Bible says we all sin, we all fall short of the glory of God, and we're all criminals. We're all criminals, morally and spiritually. We've all broken God's law many many times over and we should never compare ourselves well i'm not as bad a criminal as him it doesn't matter if you're a criminal you're a criminal and every one of us is a thief and a robber as well because we have all stolen from god things that belong to him at different times in our life we've robbed and ripped other people off and hurt people and the things we've done wrong at different times in our life with our words we've said or our actions or things we've even thought so we are just as guilty as this man hanging here on the cross these two individuals and so the one thief is now beginning to have this revelation to which he verse 42 expresses his faith turning to jesus he then says to him lord which means master ruler i have been ruling my own life robbing god now i recognize you are the lord of glory you are the son of god and so therefore i don't want to rob god anymore i want you to take control of my life I want you to be ruler over me to my last breath until it expires. Lord, I submit myself to you. And he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's an expression of faith there. He calls him Lord. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He believed Jesus had a kingdom. He believed though Jesus was dying right next to him that apparently Jesus was going to somehow beyond death be a king over a kingdom. That's faith there. He believes in who Jesus genuinely is and he makes a simple expression of his faith towards Jesus. He expresses his faith. He submits himself to Jesus. He repents of what he has done, turning to Jesus. That's all he does. In verse 43, it says, Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. 
Jesus assures this man, despite all he had done, that by his simple faith alone and submitting himself to the Lord in his guilty condition, being aware of his guilt and recognizing who Jesus was on his behalf, when he expressed his faith in his heart and submitted himself to the Lordship of Jesus in that moment, Jesus says, I assure you, everything that's happened in your past, don't worry about it. Today, you will be with me in paradise. You'll be with me. And what an incredible thing. Again, one of the greatest pictures of salvation by grace and through faith alone in the Bible. You want Ephesians 2 modeled right there in the Bible. Jesus didn't say to him, well, look, you know, I mean, that's great, but our ocean water baptism is not till July. And I I don't know what we're going to be able to do because I don't know if you'll make it to then. Jesus didn't say to him, well, I mean, if you can get down and prove that you're a disciple and do some good works and let me see some fruit. I mean, I, we just, we got to test that out. None of that. If you can come to church or read your Bible or pray or give so much money or none of that. What did he do? He expressed faith in Jesus. He sensed guilt of sin He expressed faith towards Jesus and he said, Lord, I want to trust you. I believe in you. Please bring me into your kingdom with you. I want to be in heaven. And Jesus assured him of his salvation, assured him of his forgiveness, assured him of his love and said, today you will be with me in paradise. What a great term. It's only used three times in the New Testament. Paradise as a reference to the eternal kingdom. It's used here. It's used as well in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12 where Paul talks about being caught up into the third heaven and seeing visions and revelations and things that were inexpressible that he couldn't even explain. And, and the term there is used again, paradise, referring to the eternal kingdom, the spiritual eternal realm where God dwells. And it's also used in Revelation chapter 2 regarding writing to one of the churches where Jesus there, again, uses that same term to talk about the paradise of God, referring to the eternal dimension in the presence of God and all the glory. And again, I'm really thankful. What a great term. And Jesus uses it twice. I mean, if there were any term you want to give me to describe heaven, I like that one. Paradise. Paradise. Because think about your life on this earth. Has it been paradise? Maybe you had the privilege to even go somewhere like Hawaii. Oh, I went to Hawaii. That was like paradise. Oh, no, it wasn't because you had to leave. Right? <laughs> when the vacation ended, paradise ended. And that's just, again, I, I've said to you know, some people before when they've gone somewhere like that, I say, and just think, that's the cursed version of the earth. Here we go to some really nice places, like, wow, that was like paradise. No, that's the messed up version. Can you imagine what the paradise of God, the presence of God, what, you know, streets of gold and the glory and the bliss and the light of God and, and the peace and the joy? And no more sorrow or suffering or sickness or death or pain. No more divorce courts or child abuse or sex traffic or I mean just all the stuff that's gone. And just paradise. Paradise. Forever and ever and ever and ever. Because of what Jesus did and simply trusting that. And look, let me say this. Can you imagine, just think with me for a moment as as we conclude, imagine for this thief, I have to wonder, as I put myself into his, here he is, 
And like any other natural human being, he is, as he's probably no doubt being crucified together with Jesus and you know hanging on the cross there, what do you think he's doing? He's thinking back through his whole life, right? I mean, that's what you'd have to be doing in that moment and all the baggage. And he is probably just sitting there, hanging there, just overwhelmed with just regret. All the regrets thinking, man, that bad decision and that bad decision and all the guilt and just weighing and all the disappointment. I'm disgusted with myself and I'm so disappointed and I ruined my life. So much of my life, I ruined it. All the regret, all the ruin. all And he's just plagued with all of this. And then in a split second, before he enters into the eternal dimension and faces all the judgment of God, his eternal destiny changes. And despite all that baggage of the regret and the disappointment and what he ruined and had remorse over, in an instant, in some ways, I have to imagine it's alleviated as Jesus sort of just says to him, Despite all that, I know you regret a lot and you got a lot of remorse and a lot of guilt and pain and sorrow, but listen, despite all that, I love you. I forgive you for everything you've done. And now I'm going to get you out of that. And the rest of your experience will be paradise. Paradise. Forever and ever, there'll be no regret, There'll be no guilt. There'll be no condemnation, no shame, no remorse. Forever and ever and ever, all you will know is paradise. And I have to imagine as this man came to that reality and embraced Jesus and had his spiritual conversion, that his last few dying breaths had to be really peaceful and had to be filled with joy because he thought, you know, despite all that, Paradise, man. Paradise is what I'm about to enter into someday soon. And you know, this evening, let me just say, as we enter back into worship and partake of communion and reflect upon these realities and and that promise for us as well, whether it's guilt and regret and remorse of things that happened in your past or were a part of your life, listen, be consoled in your heart. Find rest in your spirit to know, despite all that, It is well with your soul. And paradise is on the other side of this short life that's just but a vapor. And maybe it's not guilt, regret, and remorse. Maybe it's other things that are painful, as you're like this man in pain, dying, just hardships, difficulties. Look, it is well with your soul. And paradise is your destiny because of what Jesus did suffering on our behalf and offering to us his love and forgiveness so freely. What a wonderful thing. Let's stand, let's pray together.